Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for a new day, for your grace and kindness to us again. Lord, you have filled our lives with so many mercies and uh, even taken those hard times, those uh, difficult days, and turned them into good things for us. And so, Lord, we trust you to continue to do that in our lives. We thank you for the church, a place where we can have refuge, where we can come apart and come together and to learn and grow and then be sent back out to live and to bear fruit. So help us today in regard to this subject of raising our children uh, to be diligent, to listen, to continue to learn and grow, and to give thanks. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want to make a note today about a... Uh, we're going to be obviously talking about a lot of different things in regard to child training, but uh, and sometimes I don't know exactly where to plug something in, but I want to talk about the warning that Scripture gives specifically to fathers. But remember, fathers and mothers are a team, and so usually when God is addressing fathers, there's an implication there for mothers as well, because from the children's perspective, mother and father are the same. Honor your father and your mother. Submit to your father and your mother. Obey your father and your mother. And so uh, so God addresses the, res- the chief uh, responsible party, who's the father. Uh, but again, there are implications here for anybody who is in a, a position of authority. So the scriptures say to fathers not to provoke your children to wrath. So does that mean you should never make your children unhappy? Uh, no, that's not what that says. Um, when you're acting in a just and loving manner to train your children in the way of the Lord, they will inevitably experience unpleasantness at points. The parent who is never the cause of displeasure in their child does not really love their child. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. We often find the discipline of the Lord unpleasant. But it's all, what, what, why, why when the discipline itself is unpleasant, why should we give thanks for it? God hadn't given up on me. God loves me, right? And that's it's an indication of his love. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. So when I'm being chastened, even when it's unpleasant, I'm to recognize that this is an act of love, not an act of hatred, not God getting ticked off at me, and now he's going to punish me because I irritated him, and he's getting even. Uh, he is chastening me, he's correcting me, he's bringing me back into alignment with his truth, with his law, with his word, because he loves me, because that's what's good for me, because if I stay over here, I'm going to get hurt, or I might die. It's going to be bad. And the same thing, parents, as we represent uh, God to our children. Nevertheless, we we might provoke them to wrath and prove to be a discouragement to them by several means. And I want to mention the ways, some of the ways that we might sin here and and not uh, chasten in love. First, by always having a rigid sternness 
and not showing genuine sympathy or understanding for their frame. Obviously, there's a difference between a 2-year-old and a 10-year-old and a 15-year-old, and we make adjustments. There are different personalities and and character traits in our children. Some are more sensitive. Some are more hard-headed. There's there's a whole range of that. Sometimes they're having a really awful day for other reasons. Uh, We take all the wisdom, we take all those things into account, as we're interacting with them. We may fail to really enter into the lives of our children and thereby forget to experience their joys and their sorrows. Doesn't the Lord do that for us? Remember, we represent the Lord. How does the Lord deal with us? Is he always harsh? Is he always rigid in the way he deals with us? We may be so preoccupied with our own business and concerns that we don't pay proper attention. We find whatever they're doing just to be annoying or interrupting us or making our life more difficult, and we just want it to stop. If we would have our children's hearts turned toward us, remember that's the goal of the gospel, that's what God said in the closing of the Old Testament, that Elijah the prophet, who would be John the Baptist, was going to come and prepare the way of the Lord, uh, prepare the way ahead of the Lord, uh, and he would do so by turning the hearts of the fathers toward their children and the hearts of the children toward their fathers. And again, the implication there is mothers as well. Um, And so if we're to to have our children's hearts turned toward us, if we're to have their respect, then what we have to demonstrate, and that's that's a, a key word there, it has to be demonstrative. It has to be seen that our hearts are turned toward them. So um, it might have to do with the tone of our voice. It might have to do with the fact that instead of just barking an order, uh, there's a time and a place for that when they've already been trained to say, I told you to stop it. Stop it right now. Okay? I mean, everything has to turn into a conversation, but sometimes there needs to be a conversation. Sometimes I need to show that I'm going to take the time to sit down and interact on whatever it is. So that first thing is, uh, again, you can provoke your children um, to wrath by having always having rigid sternness. Second, we may provoke we might provoke our children to wrath when we are unbending and harsh in our demands. Uh, is the only time your children hear your voice is when it's raised to issue a command? Do your children avoid coming to you? because they fear or anticipate that it will only result in being issued some new demand? Or do your children know that many times they will be tenderly received by you? Now, again, the balance in all of this is we start talking about harshness and tenderness. Can you be too tender? Yeah, you can be a softy. You can be so tender that... You never tell them no. You never demand anything of them. You never have expectations. And so, what? again, we're always looking to avoid falling in the ditch on either side of the road. There's a balance here. Uh, do they know that they can know the joy of your kind and understanding words or touch or smile? Uh, your countenance is, you know, pleasant toward them. That your joy is made complete 
when they are in your presence. We read that kind of language in scriptures. John writes, you know, our joy is made complete when we think about you. Um, Third, we might provoke our children if they are continually confronted with criticism. And I know this is, I think, an especially difficult problem because we're trying to fix our broken children. We Remember, we're responsible uh, at one level. We brought them into the world broken, and they, they're sinners, and we want to see that corrected because we do love them. Uh, but the, the temptation is to only see what's missing and to perhaps focus on that uh, and, and become imbalanced. Criticism is certainly warranted and needed, often. Nevertheless, constant criticism, uh, even when it's valid criticism, may prove to be burdensome or discouraging. Consider the resentment produced. Think about this. Put yourself in their place. Consider the resentment that would be produced if you had a boss that found nothing but your faults and never took notice of your accomplishments and contributions. Do you want to work there? In other words, you have to show your children respect. So it is not only abundant uh, criticism that must be avoided, but even the withholding of legitimate praise that may cause the provocation of children. What's the use? I can never please dad or I can never please mom. No matter what I do, it wasn't enough. If I made a A, they want to know why I didn't make an A plus. So, uh, and the parent may be thinking, well, I just want them to be excellent. I just want them to, to do better. I want them to be the best they can be. I want to push them and drive them to do. Okay. Your motive might be good, but if you're not stepping back and understanding that sometimes, even with the best of motives, we can be doing damage. Number four, we may provoke our children when we discipline them in anger. Now, again, the Scriptures say to be angry and sin not, so it's possible, not just possible, you will be angry at your children, but you don't get to sin when you're angry. It's not an excuse to lose your temper, to yell, to use uh, inappropriate language, to be harsh and all those things. I'm even hesitant to call this discipline, and I think it would better be uh, labeled vengeance. Genuine godly discipline does not break the spirit of a child, whereas the loss of parental temper does. Herein, the parent's heart is not toward their child, but toward themselves. You've made me angry, and now you're going to pay. It's parental selfishness that produces outburst. So the parent's role is that of a just judge, and his duty must be exercised with fairness and equity. Uh, The purpose of discipline is always to bring godly correction and the reformation of the child, the reforming of the child. Your, your goal is to form them. That's what your instruction does. That's why you teach them. You teach them the Bible. You teach them to read and write. You teach them all kind of things in order to form them. And then when they deviate from the form, you need to reform them. You need to reshape some, some aspect of their behavior. So reformation is 
the goal. Children know the difference between the just exercise of parental duty and the unjust venting of self-serving wrath. They do. You know the difference in that too, don't you? I think we're just born kind of knowing that. Fifth, we provoke our children when we use parental authority when we should be weaning them from it. Let me repeat that. We, we can provoke our children when we use parental authority when, in fact, we should be weaning them from that authority. Remember, we're raising adults. The goal is for them to be self-governed under God. And if I'm still telling my 18-year-old and talking to them the way I do my 5-year-old, I'm failing. God gives parents a long time to train their children and to bring them to maturity. There comes a time when parental authority must be replaced by self-government and parental authority must eventually cease. If we've accomplished our parental duty when our children are young, then the exercise of our authority should actually diminish. You think about that in the business world. If you were training somebody, a new employee, there are a lot of rules, a lot of oversight. But if you've got somebody who's moving into middle management, moving up the ranks, you, what do you want? You want somebody that you can leave the business with if you need to go away and know that it's going to run smoothly, that they know what to do. They can make wise decisions. You trust them because they're honest and they're diligent. And all those character qualities are there so that you have a trusted uh, manager of your business, which frees you up to do other things. So um, we have accomplished our parental duty when our children are young. Um, the exercise of, a, excuse me, we've accomplished our duty when they're young if, if that authority diminishes. They should have been trained to think and make wise decisions without our directing every step. So at some point, they have to test their wings, and when they do, they're going to, in many cases, most cases, maybe every case, sputter. It's new. They've not done this before. And when we treat our older children like little children, we not only testify of our own failure to train them, we may indeed provoke their justified wrath. Do not provoke your children to wrath. So there's some of those boundaries that God gives to parents. Just like we're giving boundaries to our children. Okay, don't go here. Don't go beyond that line. Stay in the yard. Uh, don't climb that tree. All kinds of boundaries we give. God gives us boundaries. And so what we want to do now is model for our children what it looks like to obey those who have authority over us. In this case, God, fathers, uh, fathers, God has authority over us, and he gives us boundaries. And when our, our children should be seeing us self-consciously keeping those boundaries. So if I, let's say I don't, uh, I, of these five things I gave here, I violate one of them, what should I do? I should repent. I should ask forgiveness. I should model that as well. 
and say, you know what, I was wrong when I lost my temper, and I need to ask your forgiveness. Now, does that mean that whatever the kid was doing that provoked you, that provoked your wrath, that that's okay or somehow that's negated? No. It's, it's, it's drawing a distinction between my behavior and their behavior. And now I'm going to show you what it looks like when I have bad behavior. What, what do we do next? Because that's also what I'm going to expect my son or daughter to do. So um, I want to turn now to talk about doctrine and discipline. Because that's, um, and, and we're not going to get through all this this morning. We'll get started on it. So these go together, and I'm kind of dividing them for the sake of just a, a means of thinking about them. You can't really have one without the other. Doctrine is just teaching. Discipline is the enforcement of what you're teaching. So you're teaching a standard. You're teaching the rules, if you will, the law. This is how we do things around here. And then when it's not done that way, uh, then there's a need for discipline. That might be a word of correction. Uh, there, there are different levels of discipline that might take place. Uh, but the, the goal is to always bring everybody back into line with the teaching, with the law, with the rules. So, so before I get into that, let me ask you a question. Um, can your family, and you've heard me talk a lot about this, but I'm going to come back to it again because it's central. Can your family be described as a loving communion? Not perfectly. We know there are always, every time a sin shows up, there's a disruption in communion. But essentially, our, our household is a place of loving, meaning it's self-sacrificing, communion. There's a common union in this place. We're one. We are a family that loves each other. If not, then you're doing something wrong. Maybe a lot of things wrong. Is your marriage a loving communion? If not, then I'd suggest that's where the problem is. Excuse me. If the grown-ups can't love and commune, then the children never will. Perhaps we need a big sign again in every room that says the mission statement. This place is a loving communion of saints. Maybe that help us remember. So with that mission in mind, we can now turn to talk about doctrine and discipline. You're going to have to teach your children doctrine with loving what loving communion is. How do we do that? So, for example, let's take something like doing the household chores. Does that have anything to do with loving communion? Yeah, we've got things to do. If this place is going to operate, we have to mop the floor and take out the trash and all kind of things for this to operate. We're going to have to work together. We're going to have a division of labor. Uh, you're going to do some and I'm going to do some. You're going to do these things and I'm going to do these other things. And when we do that, to the degree we do that, and we do it joyfully, this is a better place for all of us, right? We work together. We sacrifice together. Um, so, but you, you parents are going to have to enforce those standards. That's the discipline. 
to see to it that the mission is accomplished. All the rules and all the enforcement is for the good of your children and family, and so it is for the glory of God. We want your place, your house, to be lovely, to be beautiful, to say, man, that's a that's where I want to be. And when people visit you, they go, yeah, that's, man, I like what I see here. This is a, a lovely place. Moreover, when you get serious about his doctrine, God's doctrine, and receive his discipline, then you can have a loving communion at your house, but you can't do it before that. You're not going to get to do it on your terms. Because if you keep doing it your way, you're not going to be happy with the results. Remember, love is always about sacrifice for others, self-denial. Selfish parents and selfish kids are the problem. Loving God and loving our neighbors are the essential elements of a loving communion. It's that simple, but not that easy. Um, The family is the primary place where we learn and are tested. In fact, it's where we learn how to do everything else in life. It is, if we don't learn it there, we're probably not going to learn it uh, on our first job. Probably won't keep our first job if we don't learn it at home. So God gave us his instructions, doctrine, all scriptures profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, right? It's, it stay, but if it stays on the shelf, then we stay ignorant. We don't know his word. We don't know his doctrine. Then it's not going to benefit us. God also brings blessings or curses, or I like to say happiness or misery, based on our obedience or disobedience, which, by the way, starts with faith. First, I have to believe what God says, and then I have to do it. And that's how you know I believed it. So it's not works apart from faith. It's works because of faith. Because I believe God, I now obey God. My brethren, James 1, 2 through 5, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work in you, or maturing work in you. That's actually what the word means. It's maturing work in you that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Remember, grown-ups, that's what we're shooting for. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and he, it will be given to him. First uh, Peter 1, 6-7, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, though tried by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 28 and 29, you know, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. For he who, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, the ultimate mature man, Jesus Christ, the ultimate self-sacrificer. Hebrews 12, 11, now, no discipline for the moment uh, seems, seems to be joyful but painful. But in the end, 
Hebrews says, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. But in the end, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So discipline must always have the right goal. It's administered uh, on the objects of love and affection, in this case, our children. It's administered for their good. It's administered with justice. It's administered with the larger goal of happiness or blessedness in view. And it is administered with a view ultimately toward maturity, self-government. I'm going to say those again. It's administered on the, this is, discipline has to have the right goal. It's administered on the objects of love and affection, administered for their good, administered with justice, administered with the larger view of blessedness or happiness in view, and administered with a goal of producing maturity or self-government. That's what all discipline should be doing. Now remember, parents, you are in charge. You are the boss of your children. Now, that again, that can conjure up bad images, but keep in context everything we've said so far about not provoking them to wrath, having affection for them, loving them, training them, uh, modeling for them what submission looks like. So this means you have a duty toward God and responsibility toward your children. You will make the rules at your house. That's the doctrine. You will enforce the rules at your house. That's the discipline. Or maybe I should back up and say you either will or you won't make the rules at your house, or you either will or you won't enforce the rules at your house. That's your, we'll find out. In order to say, you do, you're making the rules and you're enforcing the rules. Why? Uh, to save and sanctify your children in Jesus Christ. That's why. They're not going to do it by themselves. So drawing the lines on doctrine and discipline, on the one hand, it's simple. You will decide, using God's Word as your standard, not some independent standard, not even your tradition. Your tradition should all perhaps undergo, you know, this is the way I was raised. This is the way my father treated me. Well, that may or may not be a good thing. You may need to make some adjustments. You may need to abandon some ways, uh, some things that were done in your childhood and adopt some new ones. The standard is, again, God's Word. You're going to decide, using God's Word as your standard, what is and what is not acceptable behavior, and you will communicate the lines clearly to your children. That's doctrine. We don't talk like that in this house. Those words are not acceptable. Zero. We don't stomp our foot when we're walking to our bedroom to clean it. That's not acceptable behavior. That's rebellion. You see, if you establish those things early, when those lines are crossed, and they will be crossed, the consequences must be imposed. That's discipline. Basically, discipline is the authority to inflict some sort of unpleasantness or pain. Um, 
Note there is a time and a place for mercy. I don't mean every single offense, every single time has to get the exact same uh, discipline. There is a time for mercy. That comes later. You must be committed to instructing and training in the doctrine, though. You don't get to just jump ahead to the discipline. What must and must not be done? The Ten Commandments would be a good place to start. How must it be done? Well, you're not just going to tell them. You're going to do what? What? Show them. Train them. Let them see you do it. Let them see your attitude. Uh, I like to remind you, obviously we talk about wives uh, showing respect or submitting to their husbands and those roles of husband and wife. That's not, uh, men. remember as, as men and women, uh, even as children, we're all equals before God. We're all human beings. We all should be treated with respect and love and, and kindness and and then there is a sense in which uh, Ephesians says uh, we're to submit to one another. But when it comes to the role of husband, wife, or father, mother, there is a hierarchy in the family. But with a hierarchy, whoever is at the top has a greater responsibility. So again, Scripture addresses fathers because fathers are primarily responsible for what happens in the household. Um, and so... Um, but you don't just jump to discipline. You start with instruction. Um, you must carry out, though, uh, excuse me, yeah, you must carry out the enforcement of the doctrine, that is discipline, regardless, parents, of whether it is convenient or inconvenient. And I think this is an aside right now, but I just comment. I do think it's one of the real dangers uh, among about a million other real dangers associated with our current electronic devices. Before that, we had televisions, and before that, I'm sure there were other, always things we're looking to hand to our children to occupy them so that we don't have to enter, uh, so they'll leave us alone. So they'll not, and, and right, there's a time. I need to go wash the dishes. I need to go mow the grass. I need to go do something. I need you to be, I'm not saying all of that is bad, but what's happened is it has become so extra convenient to do that. Uh, and, and so we think we have good children because we have occupied children and because they're not bothering us. That means they're good. But a lot of bad things can be go going on while they're being occupied that won't make them good, that will make them the opposite of good. So... Always know, you be sure you've thought through all of that. Um, so, again, you're going to enforce whether it's convenient or unpleasant or whether you feel good or not. Discipline is not about punishment. It is not about vengeance, parents, and it is not about you. Its sole purpose is to bring about good to your children as God defines good. Godly discipline begins with you being governed by God and his word. He gives you the orders, that is the doctrine, 
and it's your job, parents, to implement his orders. He also gives you the means to accomplish those orders. He gives you authority as parents, and he will also hold you accountable for carrying out his orders. That's his discipline. So the Christian household is a little city which has a government. And you're to be governed by God. He's the king. And you are to govern your children, parents. You are the governors. And ultimately, you will turn over that government to your adult children, where they will in turn govern themselves under God and eventually govern new households to his glory. That's how the kingdom expands. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Thus, filling the earth with his loving communion which is the original creation mandate. Law and order are necessary for the peaceable rule of any city. Law and order. Let's think a moment about covenant children, children born into covenant households, the citizens of our little cities. There's a wide range of cultivation, that is, a development of a culture that takes place or doesn't take place, There are the diligent, the not-so-diligent, the ignorant, and the slothful, and even rebellious parents. Each of these are going to cultivate a different type of soil. They're going to create a different kind of culture. Think of agriculture and getting the soil ready for these plants to grow and bear fruit. Um. Influences include affection, discipline, instruction, example, community, prayer, worship, education, friends, television, books, all those things and more. But the Bible gives us this agrarian image of the household, Proverbs 24, 30 through uh, 34. I went by the field of a lazy man and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. He doesn't know the doctrine. He's devoid of understanding. And there it was, all overgrown with thorns. Its surface was covered with nettles. Its stone wall uh, was broken down. And when I saw it, I considered it well. I looked on it, and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So shall your poverty come like a prowler and your need like an armed man. A passive approach to the cultivation of our household potentially leads to the very disasters that this parable of the sower speaks of. Um, In the case of Proverbs, uh, uh, this case in Proverbs was the result of a lack of understanding and just slothfulness, not malice. They just never read a book, including the Bible, and just didn't do anything. Just wandered through. As a result, it was full of thorns and nettles. And that what happens with a garden if you do nothing? Moreover, the wall that was supposed to protect the vineyard from the outside influences had been allowed to erode. And all it takes for a disaster to come then in your vineyard is a lack of diligence. Now, I'm going to stop there because it's a good stopping place, and I want to read a letter uh, to young men that I wrote some time back. 
And there's application here for young ladies, but I want to just read this. It's a change of subject, but related. So young men, as you leave boyhood and become a man, let me encourage you to focus on the one thing that is necessary for you uh, if you're to be like the ultimate man, Jesus Christ. And that is respect. Respect is when people look up to you and can rely on you. Disrespect is when people look down in disappointment and contempt. Respect starts with self-respect, which comes when a man does the right thing when no one is looking, and he knows he'll not receive any recognition from other people. He always knows that God is looking, and therefore he is a self-governed man under God's word. He tells the truth when the lie would get him off the hook. He works hard when the boss is not around. He is kind and self-sacrificing. His first concern is his duty toward God and his responsibility for others. This is a true man, a man who has a clear conscience and sleeps well at night. The man with self-respect owns his mistakes, confesses his sins, and is genuinely humble. As a result, he lives a life of gratitude because he knows that he is dependent on God and those around him. Remember, humility is always attractive. God loves to see a humble young man, and in due time, he will exalt that young man. The man with self-respect before God is faithful in little things. And when the time is right, God will give him even more responsibilities and he will become a leader of others. Your focus must shift dramatically from play to work. There remains a time to play, but the purpose of play in the life of a boy is to prepare him to work. A young man often works in order to have money to play. A mature man finds pleasure in the work itself. And when he works, and works hard and well, he finds self-respect and finds himself being respected. Moreover, a man who really worships God is on his way to being respected because he is doing his duty and showing respect to his heavenly Father. Deep within your heart, 24-7, there is a devotion to God that is seen by all, resulting in respect because a man who knows how to bow is also a man who knows how to stand. You should be respected by your parents, teachers, elders, pastors, bosses, and any other who have authority or seniority over you. They can see further than you because they've lived longer. And when they look at you, they should see a young man that is going somewhere. They are confident that your trajectory is toward the top, and they are anxious to see how your story progresses Without respect, it is possible to be loved or even pitied, but it is only by way of respect that you can ever be admired. Love and pity can be given in spite of a person, but respect must be earned. To find a wife, a truly great woman, you must first be valuable yourself, which means she and her family must respect you and see that you have value. In fact, that will be your fundamental task as you pursue a wife, to win her respect, to win the respect of her parents, her father, 
should willingly give her to you only if he respects you. He will respect you if you're a man who does his duty toward God and fulfills all his responsibilities. You will have to show respect in order to gain respect. You will have to make a thousand deposits that someday you will have reserves to draw so that someday you'll have reserves to draw from. The people we respect are the people we trust. The trust is critical to any good marriage. You will need a wife that you respect and trust, and the only way to acquire a woman like that is for you to first be a respectable man. As a future father, respect is paramount. You have been blessed, perhaps, with a respectable father who is respected by his wife, uh, as well as by his church and others in the community. At every place where your father has imitated the heavenly father, you should imitate him. He knows that he's a flawed man, but he is hoping to see you do even better than he has done. He has provided you with a head start. He and your mother have loved and sacrificed enormously for you. They've provided for you, protected you, instructed you, disciplined you, prayed for you, and have contributed to your welfare in countless ways, and to whom much is given, much is required. Do not squander, but rather improve upon the station you've been given. Stand on their respectable shoulders and reach higher so that someday your children can reach even higher. Pay it forward. There is no greater inheritance a man can leave his children than to die a respected man. So, from this point forward, young men, in your quest to be a true Christian man, your focus must be on loving God and loving your neighbors, which always means denying yourself and sacrificing for the sake of others. It is hard, but it is also good. Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, it will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Just as the way up, that is respectability, is first down, humility, so too the way to receive God's blessing is to give. In the end... You only get to keep what you first gave away. The greatest pleasure a man can know is to receive the respect of those around him. Go for it. Go for it all the way. And may you know all the fullness of God's covenant blessings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your doctrine and for your discipline of us. Uh, We pray, Father, uh, as parents, we can turn around and take those two things and give them to our children, that we might do so with love and affection, keeping in mind the goals and mission that you've called us to, to produce uh, children whose hearts are turned toward us because our hearts are turned toward them, and ultimately, all of our hearts turn toward you. So, Lord, you know that we need much grace in this, that we stumble both as parents and children many, many ways every day. So, Lord, be gracious to us and help us, strengthen us, encourage us, and we pray you now uh, would uh, prepare us for worship, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.